This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. great pleasure to introduce Dr. David Hausler. In 1985, when Dr. Sinsheimer called this meeting, David Hausler was a young assistant professor just starting his research career. The following year, we were delighted and grateful now that he joined the UC Santa Cruz faculty. In March 2000, he was appointed the UC Presidential Chair of Computer Science, and in May 2000, he was named an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He is the director of the UC Santa Cruz Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering, co-director of the California Institute for Bioengineering, Biotechnology, and Quantitative Biomedicine, one of Governor Davis's new institutes. Dr. Hausler and his team are collaborators on the Human Genome Project. He has published extensively in scientific journals on mathematics, computer science, artificial intelligence, and of course bioinformatics and is a member of a number of influential organizations in scientific and engineering fields. And we learned just recently that he has just been named the 2001 Scientist of the Year by R&D Magazine. May I introduce to you Dr. David Hausler. Thank you very much, Marcy, and uh, thanks also for getting us those computers to get started in March in 2000, uh, working on the Human Genome Project. Uh, your vision and the vision of former Dean Pat Manti really made a difference in this project, and uh, we owe you a great debt of gratitude for that, as well as for organizing this fantastic uh, forum. So thanks again. It's my uh, role here to introduce our keynote speaker, Francis Collins. And i just start with a little quick summary of, of some of the milestones uh, in his life, uh, in his career. Uh, PhD from Yale uh, in physical chemistry in 1974. MD, MD from uh, the University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill in 1977. He went on to do a fellowship in human genetics in pediatrics at Yale. He was professor of internal medicine and human genetics at the University of Michigan and an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute until 1993 when he was recruited then to take the reins of the Human Genome Project. Uh, he actually took what was then a center for human genome research and converted it into an institute, the National Human Genome Research Institute. And under his outstanding leadership, this institute has grown and, and uh, become a major force in this area in the world. And of course, Marcy uh, alluded to uh, a crowning moment recently, uh, June 26th, when he was uh, recognized for his achievements at the White House uh, in a ceremony celebrating the first 
public working draft of the human genome sequence. Well, Francis is not only responsible for doing that extraordinary task, but long before he got involved in the Human Genome Project per se, he was hunting uh, genes that are important in many of the most devastating and most significant diseases. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our distinguished keynote speaker, Dr. Francis Collins. Thank you, David. That was incredibly kind and generous, the kind of introduction that had my parents been here, my father would have been proud, and my mother would have said, oh, come off it. <laughs> it is a great pleasure to be here in Santa Cruz, because the Genome Project has much, I think, to recognize in terms of what has happened and will happen at this university uh, to make this wonderful dream of understanding our instruction book come true. Of course, I refer in the first place to this meeting in 1985 that Marcy talked about, which was the first gathering to consider in a serious way whether it might be possible to tackle something as difficult as reading out the 3.1 billion letters, at least we now know that's the number, of our code. And so it's fair to say it all started right here. Uh, in addition, it's particularly wonderful to be here because of your chancellor, uh, Marcy Greenwood, who I had the pleasure of working with when she was in Washington, playing a very critical role in the White House Science Office. And it's delightful to come and see the imprint she's had on this place and the way in which it's moving forward in so many exciting directions. Uh, and of course, it's particularly wonderful to be here in Santa Cruz because of the role uh, that David Hausler and his group uh, have been playing and will play in the computational aspects of the Genome Project. Uh, without David and his uh, talented group, particularly his graduate student, Jim Kent, uh, we would not be able to see the genome having emerged in the fashion that I have the pleasure of telling you about. We had many distinguished people here yesterday for this workshop that's already been mentioned, and some of them are in the audience, and I feel uh, humbled and somewhat terrified at being the person to present the overview of what the Genome Project uh, has been about and where it's all going, because any of them could do as well or better in that task. But I'm honored to have the chance to give it a crack. And so I'm going to try in the next few minutes to tell you how we got to this point where we are now, but mostly about where we're going next, because I think that's probably of even greater interest uh, to all of you. And then, as you heard, we'll take a break and have a panel discussion that Richard Harris will moderate where we can get into some of the issues in more detail. Whoops. Well, the Genome Project was, in fact, uh, something which hadn't been thought of until Santa Cruz in 1985 and uh, which had a lot of uh, debate about it over the course of the next few years. And in the scientific community in the late 1980s, there was anything but consensus about this being a good idea. In fact, I think it's fair to say that a lot of folks were violently opposed to this project on various grounds. Uh, one was that this reading out of all those letters of the code was technically not possible. And to a certain extent, that was true. We didn't know how to do it at that point. Uh, but, you know, if you don't set a goal, you're unlikely to develop the technology to do it. So perhaps there was an argument there to say, well, let's try anyway. Uh, there were also those who were fearful that this would cost a vast sum of money 
uh, which would be uh, taken away from other uh, forms of biomedical research, particularly the tried and true and very successful investigator-initiated hypothesis-driven science that has been the glory of U.S. research uh, for decades. Uh, happily, the cost of this project has turned out to be less than expected and has amounted roughly to about 1.5% of the NIH budget, uh, which is a relief to a lot of people. But I think the objection that perhaps uh, caused the most commotion and trouble was that this would just be so mind-numbingly boring that nobody who had a brain would want to participate. And it would recruit a variety of mediocre scientists who couldn't do anything else, or even it was suggested perhaps this should be uh, the task assigned to prisoners, uh, that you had to do a certain number of base pairs before you could get parole. And, and that was a bit of a serious concern because at the time this project was being proposed, it was very labor-intensive and it involved an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of repetitive tasks, even to read out a few a thousand letters of the code. And the idea of scaling this up by uh, orders of magnitude, if carried out in that same fashion, would have involved uh, a great deal of mind-numbing activity. But of course that didn't happen either. Uh, the creative talents of the people working on this project uh, made sure that as soon as something was possible to automate, it got automated and technology got developed to make sure that would happen. And now, in fact, if you walk around inside the larger genome centers, you will see a lot of machines and a lot of computers and you'll see only a modest number of people. Uh, so you'll be glad to know we have not put anybody into in sort of indentured servitude in order to get the project done. Well, how far we have come, because gosh, in 1985, nobody really had thought much about this. In 1990, it got underway, and now in 2001, you can find cartoons like this that clearly are California-oriented and which tell us the genome has truly arrived. Now, why are we doing this project in the first place? Uh, there are many answers to that, but I think the most prominent one and the one that I'm perhaps most attracted to as a physician is that we're doing this for medical purposes. We are trying to understand the genetic contribution to virtually every disease, and virtually every disease, if you look hard enough, will have such a contribution. In some instances, like cystic fibrosis, the genetic contribution is very strong. If you've inherited two misspelled copies of that gene on chromosome 7, you're going to get cystic fibrosis. But the kind of medical care you get may have a lot to do with how you do. So even in that case, it's appropriate to say the environment plays a role in the disease. Most of the diseases that currently fill up our clinics and hospital wards are not as simply inherited as cystic fibrosis. They're things like diabetes and cancer and heart disease and stroke and mental illness. And here diabetes is used as the example, but I could have just as well put a number of other common illnesses uh, as the label of this pie chart, and it would have been pretty close to right, that there's a mix here of environment and genetics, and the genetic part is complicated. It's not a single gene. It's multiple genes variants in which contribute a certain amount to risk. And if you get a certain number of those risk variants plus an environmental situation that triggers the illness, then you get sick. But this is at least an order of magnitude, probably more than that, more difficult to unravel than is something like cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease. Even infectious diseases, which you might argue don't fit on this slide because they are, after all, caused by an exogenous agent, uh, we are learning increasingly that not everybody has the same reaction after the same exposure. About 1% of the population, for instance, is genetically immune to AIDS from having inherited a uh, copy of the gene that normally allows uh, a protein to be made which the virus uses to get into the cell. If that protein isn't there, the virus can't get into the cell, those folks will never develop the disease we call AIDS. 
And it's true for almost every infectious disease where you look closely enough. So genetics is really about all diseases. If you want to understand how that all works, you have to start looking at this molecule early on. And this, of course, is DNA. This is this wonderful common instruction material of all living organisms. You see it here spilling out of the nucleus of the cell, and if you could actually see it under the microscope, which we can sort of do in blurry fashion, but we know its structure from other means much better, uh, you would notice that it is a double helix. The information carrying capacity consists of the series of bases, which have chemical names uh, that we abbreviate as A, C, G, and T. And if those are red along one strand, you can immediately predict what they would be for the other strand because A always pairs with T and G always pairs with C. And so it is that series of letters written in this very simple alphabet with just four letters in its code that necessarily must determine all the biological properties of an organism. In the case of the human organism, I've already mentioned how many of those letters it takes, 3.1 billion. And it is perhaps a bit surprising that that's enough when you consider all the things that we human beings have to be able to do. Three billion of these letters uh, seems like a pretty efficient way to store the code. It seems particularly efficient when you contemplate the fact that only a small fraction of this, uh, less than 2%, uh, seems to be involved, in fact, in actually coding for proteins. Now, how does that part work? DNA, of course, sits in the nucleus. It is the instruction book, but it doesn't carry out the instructions. It's transcribed into RNA, which in this uh, somewhat silly cartoon here is the messenger that carries the information out to the cytoplasm, and there it gets made into protein, and it's proteins that do the work. So how does genetic risk of illness come about? Well, it comes about because there's a glitch in the DNA, a misspelling. So this was supposed to be ACTG, and now it's CCTG. That means the RNA is also going to get misspelled. And that means when the protein gets made, if, in fact, this was in a vulnerable place, part of the genome that codes for protein, things may not go so well. Now, lest you think this is about somebody else, uh, let me uh, tell you, and this may not be good news, uh, that we are all in the situation of having a certain number of these glitched uh, genes. Perhaps that number uh, will eventually get better understood, but it's in the neighborhood of several dozen. There are no perfect genetic specimens. We're all flawed at the DNA level. This is the biological equivalent of original sin, I suppose. We are all carrying around a certain number of these misspellings. And uh, lest anyone imagine that they're exempt from that, uh, biologists will come along and tell you otherwise. And we are, in fact, not far away, and I'll come to this in a bit, uh, from a circumstance of being able to find out for each of us what some of those glitches are. And that immediately raises the question for all of us, which I'd ask you to think about for a minute, do you want to know? You know, this is a pretty forward-looking institution. Suppose I decided I'd just set up a booth out there in the courtyard, and you could come up afterwards and scrape your cheek with a little wooden swab and give me a few cells from your cheek, and I'd take it back to the NIH and do a DNA analysis and call you next week and say, uh, your risk of Alzheimer's is twice the average, and your risk of diabetes is actually lower than average, and oh, by the way, if you're smoking, you better quit, because if you continue to, your chance of getting lung cancer is 45%. That kind of circumstance is not too far away. It's not here today, but it's not too far away, and it will challenge all of us to figure out how to incorporate that opportunity into better medical care. Okay, well, how do we get to the current state of understanding of the genome? And again, it's actually a rather rudimentary state, as you will see. Reading out the letters of the code is in many ways the easy part. 
figuring out how it works is the part that lies ahead, which is much more challenging. But we had to get to that code, uh, first of all, and it was hard enough, believe me, as this project was being proposed. It got underway in 1990. The early years of the Genome Project were devoted to developing maps, which you can think of as the view of the genome from 30,000 feet, where you want the general outlines before you go in and try to read every letter. And those went extremely well and got done ahead of schedule and were extremely useful for people trying to track down the genetic causes of certain illnesses. And we've seen many of those disease genes identified over the course of the last 10 years as these resources kicked in. The sequencing of the genome, reading out all those letters, was clearly not going to be possible in 1990 when the project got started because we didn't have efficient enough technology to do that on the scale of 3 billion letters. So instead, sequencing was attempted on simpler organisms like bacteria and yeast and roundworms and fruit flies, gradually gaining an experience until by 1996 it was possible to begin the process of piloting all of this for human DNA. Between 96 and 99, the International Sequencing Consortium, consisting of about 20 groups in six countries around the world, which I've had the privilege uh, to oversee, uh, worked together to try to see how much we could learn uh, in the process of piloting the sequencing of our own DNA. And by March of 1999, if you'd gone to the internet where uh, the uh, people were keeping track of how this was going, you would have seen something that looked like this. These are the human chromosomes in a sort of cartoon fashion, and the areas that are colored in were the regions that were sequenced as of that point. This is only a little more than two years ago, and you will notice that there's a lot of untouched territory. Only about 15% of the genome had been sequenced. Now, by the way, a very significant decision made back in 96 was that all of the sequencing data produced by this consortium would be deposited into the public domain. And so the sequence was easy to follow because every 24 hours, the genome centers were putting it onto the Internet. And you could see exactly, as you see here, where things went. The sequencing centers also agreed not to file patents on the information because they didn't believe that there was an easy way to figure out what it all meant. Uh, at least in a very quick turnaround, and it was better to make it available for anybody with a good idea to try to sort that out. And this tradition, I think, of immediate release and uh, not filing any intellectual property, I think has been a very useful aspect of what the public consortium has contributed and has made it possible, in fact, for a dramatic acceleration, particularly in the last year or two, of disease gene discovery. Well, what happened in March of 99 is the large-scale genome centers that were doing the majority of this effort uh, got together and decided the capacity that existed was now sufficient uh, that we could tackle the whole thing. But we would focus particularly on trying to cover the genome in what we called a working draft, which is a very useful sequence, but it is not the finished sequence. It will still have gaps in it and ambiguities and uncertainties and glitches that will have to get fixed. And in this particular diagram, the red areas are finished. The few areas you see here in yellow-green are the ones that are draft. And the decision was to push the draft effort very hard and to see whether in the space of perhaps a year and a half we could cover most of the sequence. And you will now see this beginning to fill in as uh, the months click by and the work was going on. And these centers working very nicely and seamlessly together uh, began to produce rather prodigious quantities of information. And so, in fact, by May of 2000, we had reached 90% coverage of the human genome sequence. That meant sequencing 1,000 base pairs a second, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, when I was a postdoctoral fellow, sequencing 1,000 base pairs was about enough to get you a PhD. And so you can see the rate at which this had to scale up in order to accomplish this. 
Uh, I get such a bang out of this, I think I'll show it to you again because... <laughs> and again, this is a testimony to the incredible, uh, prodigious hard work uh, done by these 16 centers all over the world, uh, many of whom are represented here today. And uh, yeah, I think uh, they're the ones who deserve the credit. I'm the guy who gets to stand up and show pretty pictures like this. They were out there cranking away, uh, getting the information produced. Well, we spent the next several uh, uh, months then analyzing this sequence, trying to see what we could learn from it. And here's where our colleagues here in Santa Cruz played an absolutely critical role. Because at that point, in May of 2000, and June when we went to the White House for a big announcement, we still had not had the ability to try to put all the pieces together in an optimal fashion so that you had contiguous stretches of DNA over many hundreds of thousands of base pairs. That required a very sophisticated computational approach. And Jim Kent, who's sitting right over there, uh, stepped into this situation uh, with the most remarkable energy and talent and capabilities uh, that you could imagine. And in the course of just a very short period of time, aided by Marcy Greenwood's generosity in the uh, provision of a certain number of computers and David Hausler's leadership and uh, intelligence and experience in this field, uh, suddenly we had a pretty good working uh, effort here to show the sequence coming together. And that made it possible for a group of some four dozen computational biologists uh, who had pretty much decided to drop everything and work just on this for about six or eight months to try to see what we could learn from the sequence. And this was a pretty exciting and heady experience. This is like having a chance to read the most amazing classic of literature that you could imagine for the first time and to try to interpret it. And of course, I'm sure we got parts of this wrong. We already know some parts of what we said in this uh, particular report are not quite on target. But I think most of it will turn out to be right. And what an exhilarating opportunity it was uh, to read this for the first time. So this analysis then was published in February and simultaneously, our colleagues at Solera published their analysis of the human genome sequence based on their own very prodigious sequencing effort. And Gene Myers is here from Solera and will be part of the panel later on. They took a different scientific strategy, which placed considerable challenges on the assembly process. But it was actually very useful that the two efforts adopted different strategies. And we had a recent meeting in June uh, to look at that issue. And I think we've learned a lot from the comparison of the two. And I must say, all of the fuss and bother that went on about this being a race uh, was not particularly useful or, in fact, particularly accurate. And I think we're all glad that that phase is over and we're on to the next phase of figuring out what this all means. Now, in the cover of Nature, you will notice there, uh, we chose rather carefully, and obviously the folks at Science and Solera did as well. And you're interesting to see here that while both of these papers were about DNA, the covers are chosen to not only represent DNA but also to represent people. This uh, is actually a mosaic, and each of the squares in the mosaic is a person from somewhere in the world, and there are all sorts of ethnicities and ages and genders and uh, modes of dress represented on this cover, uh, which is then designed so that it represents the DNA double helix. But being a scientist who, believe it or not, do have a sense of humor, uh, we decided it would be fun to have a little Where's Waldo in this particular cover. And we decided, because we're all shy and retiring, that we wouldn't represent ourselves on the cover. That would really be a little tacky. Uh, but we did think there were a couple of legendary figures in genetics who belonged uh, in some location here. Well, one of them was Mendel. And so we hid Mendel in this cover, and we're very proud of that, and anticipated lots of people spending time trying to find him. Uh, when we got the actual cover back, it turned out that nature had trimmed the margins a bit. 
So I'm going to tell you a secret. If you look right down there, you can see Mendel's forehead. <laughs> That's all. But if you're a real Mendel aficionado, you will recognize that impressive forehead of, uh, of our monk. The other one that you can find in here, but it takes you quite a while, is Watson and Crick, uh, standing and admiring the double helix back in 1953 when they figured out its structure. And because I'm not anxious to have all of you waste a lot of time looking for it, and it actually takes a while, I'm going to reveal the location of Watson and Crick. It's actually right down there, uh, hidden away in this particular image. Uh, if you have a chance to look at this uh, in the actual copy of the uh, journal, you'll also find some interesting people. The Queen of England got in there somehow. I think our British colleagues had something to do with that. Uh, John Glenn is in there, I discovered recently. I'm not quite sure why that is. But the real point of this was to emphasize the diversity of who we are and that this is, yeah, about DNA, but it's really about the human race. And it's about our genome, all of our genome, our shared inheritance. Well, what did we learn from this? Well, first of all, we wouldn't have learned very much if we hadn't had the ability to look at the sequence in creative ways. And again, I want to highlight the critically important work that was done here uh, by Hausler and Kent and others. Uh, this is a screenshot uh, from Jim Kent's browser, uh, which uh, for my money is the most accessible, most user-friendly, uh, most powerful way to look at the genome sequence. If you want to look at it later on today, please copy down this URL. Uh, Jim, I know, can handle all of those hits that are going to happen later on because he's already handling a prodigious number of hits from all over the world. Uh, and this has a number of tracks on it, as you can see down here, and you can turn them on or off, and you can zoom in or out. This happens to be a diagram of a region on chromosome 7 that contains something called the MET oncogene. It also contains on here uh, regions that show you homology to the mouse, which has recently arrived and very useful information. And as we talked about yesterday in this workshop, it's a prodigiously useful information, but we still are not sure, staring at a region like this, whether we've got it all right as far as predicting where the genes are. And that's not just because it's a draft of the sequence, although the draftiness of the sequence sometimes makes it a little difficult to know how to interpret it. It's mostly because we're not nearly as smart as the cell is in looking at a stretch of DNA and figuring out where the genes are. That is a very difficult problem requiring both computational and experimental efforts. By the way, the genome does fit on a CD-ROM. I'm holding up one. Three billion base pairs will fit, but only if you do something special. You know, when we got the sequence together and we thought uh, in the uh, last days uh, of last year that it would be nice to have it on a CD-ROM that we could give out to our colleagues who had done all this work, sort of a moment memento of the occasion, uh, we discovered that it really doesn't fit on a CD-ROM. And once again, David Hausler came to the rescue, worked with his group to come up with a compression program that will allow you to take this information and make it fit in a space that it really shouldn't be able to, and also put the decompression program on the CD-ROM so it's not just a theoretical triumph. You can actually use this. <laughs> and so it's all here on one CD-ROM. And actually, it's kind of a heady experience to hold this in your hand and I had the opportunity in the last two days of the Clinton administration to present one of these uh, to President Clinton, and I think it was, for him, probably one of the most significant mementos of his time in Washington. Uh, I'm sure he got many other gifts in those last few days, but he really uh, cherished this one. <laughs> We're not going there. Not talk about gifts being given or received. No, we're not going there. Uh, <laughs> At any rate, now people who want to use the sequence of the human genome 
Am I blushing? Uh, uh, would probably not want to go to this CD-ROM because it's got all the letters on there, but what you really need are tools to be able to use that, various uh, algorithms and programs. And so, in fact, the web-based version, such as what you see here, is what people are using tens of thousands of times a day. Now, what do we learn? Well, I could go on for a long time about surprises that came out of this analysis of the human genome sequence because there were many of them. I'll just touch on a couple and then we'll move on to the future here. Well, one of them, and it got a lot of attention, although the number is clearly somewhat still in controversy, uh, the number is going to turn out, we most of us believe, to be substantially less than the 100,000 that had been predicted all along and probably more in the neighborhood of 30 to 40,000 genes. So only about a third of the expected number. Now, maybe that doesn't seem very surprising, but when you consider that a roundworm has 19,000 genes and a fruit fly has 13,000 genes, if you were counting on gene count to explain why we are so special, uh, it isn't going to help you very much. I understand that rice, rice has 50,000 genes, more than we do, apparently. Have we underestimated what's going on inside that little rice kernel? Uh, no, I don't think so. In fact, we already have some ideas about how it is that this apparent anomaly in gene count compared to biological complexity uh, might be explained. One of them is that our genes are capable of making more proteins per gene on the average than many other organisms, about three to be exact. And other organisms do some of that, but not to the same extent. Other organisms, in this case, being things like yeast and flies. Uh, it also is the case that our proteins seem to be put together in a more complex way, that we cobble more domains together in a fancier architecture of our proteins, and therefore, perhaps, they have multitask capabilities that you would not necessarily see in their homologs in simpler organisms. But we will, I think, uh, have a lot of work to do here to understand how just 30 to 40,000 genes is capable of carrying out all the mechanical aspects of being a human being. That's a pretty small parts list uh, when you consider uh, what the uh, particular organism can do. Another thing we learned uh, from a rather interesting and indirect analysis was we were able to calculate the mutation rate in males compared to females. And by that I mean what's the opportunity, what's the likelihood of making a mistake in copying DNA and passing it from parent to child. And it turns out males make mistakes twice as often as females. Does that surprise you? <laughs> so guys, I'm afraid that's not great news because that means that two-thirds of genetic disease, which had to start somewhere, uh, started in us in the process of passing DNA on to our kids. But I suppose you could turn that around the other way, and I uh, promise you I will, <laughs> to say that we're also responsible for two-thirds of evolutionary progress. It's the same process after all. We also studied the so-called junk in the DNA, and I could go on a long time about this, and we learned a lot about our own genome's history uh, from studying the junk, uh, because it tells you when things arrived and how they uh, mutated over time uh, in a fashion that was much more detailed than most of us imagined it could be. Uh, this genome is not only an instruction book, it's also a history book. And there, the junk DNA was actually a very important part of reading the history. And it also turns out that at least uh, some significant fraction of it has the properties that one would expect of DNA that's functional, as opposed to completely random, useless, selfish DNA. And I think we need to reevaluate the use of the term junk, because some of this uh, clearly uh, has the footprints of something more than that. Well. 
This was all a great triumph, and we are extremely excited to have a chance to publish these results. But we need to move on here, and I'm fond of this particular quotation from Huxley. Okay, we got to the rung of the ladder, but let's keep going forward uh, to see what we can learn from this and apply it for medical good purposes. So let me move to that. And let me remind you what this is really like. Because much was made of the publications on the sequence of the human genome, and I think some people began to imagine that that means we now understand it all. Not at all. This is a very similar situation now for human biology to where the chemists were 100 years ago when Mendeleev put together his periodic table of the elements, which hangs on the wall of most high school chemistry uh, uh, classrooms. We now have our periodic table of the elements for human biology. It has about 30 to 40,000 entries. Those are the normal human genes. It has isotopes, which are common variants in those genes. But the real work lies, just as it did for chemistry, into figuring out how these elements work together. And that is the part that lies in front of us. So actually, I'm somewhat puzzled by people who keep talking about we're now entering the post-genomic era. Gee whiz, I think we've been in the pre-genomic era, and we maybe still are. The real genomic era mostly lies ahead of us. And how are we going to proceed? Well, there's a variety of areas that are now the focus of intense research, and many more are being thought about, and it is critical to get the best and the brightest of this next generation of scientists to turn attention uh, towards solving some of these problems. And uh, certainly my hope is that this will be such an attractive area of science and that the support for science will continue to be vigorous uh, that we will see those cohorts, uh, uh, teams of investigators uh, get together and try to tackle some of these really hard problems. These are just four of several areas that I might have told you about uh, where I believe there's going to be a great deal of research going on that is going to begin to gradually build a picture of how the genome works and what its role is in health and disease. Uh, medical gene genomics, where basically we try to understand individual risks for disease, is going to be very important, and I'll say a little more about that in a second. We are not done with sequencing G DNA. Even though the human is now in reasonable shape, it will take us a couple of years to turn that draft into a final completed finished form. And meanwhile, there are many other organisms whose genomes will be powerfully important in interpreting the human. The mouse is being sequenced, the rat is being sequenced, this zebrafish that you see here is being sequenced, and a whole host of other organisms are being tackled and others are knocking at the door saying, do me next, please, because the information is so valuable in terms of its ability to inform uh, scientific research. There's a great deal of interest in using things like this DNA chip that I'm showing you here to try to understand how it is that genes turn on or off. You have the same instruction book inside a liver cell and a muscle cell and a brain cell in your body. But they're using those genes in different ways. Different ones of them are turning on and off. And that may go awry in certain types of disease. So we would like to have the most powerful methods of understanding that on a global scale. And these microarrays and the associated computational uh, biology tricks are a very important fashion that we're beginning to get a handle on a very challenging problem. And of course, we have to understand the proteins. As I explained, DNA just sits there as the instruction book. It's the proteins that do the work. We really have to tackle them in the same aggressive global way uh, that the DNA has tr been tackled. And that means a much harder problem because proteins are three-dimensional and you have to think about not only what their structure is but what their function is and where they are in the cell and what other proteins they interact with. And this is going to be a very large and complicated set of uh, experimental challenges. Let me say a little more, though, about the medical genomics part of this. 
If we pulled uh, 2,000 letters off of this CD-ROM and printed them out, that's actually what this is, uh, you would see this kind of a, a monotonous arrangement of A, T, C, and G. And of course, looking at this, you'd have a very hard time figuring out what's important. This might be a page from my instruction book. What would yours look like from the very same place on the same chromosome? Well, it might look like, whoops, like that. Let's see that again. Just two differences there. If you look at those arrows, you can see that the, the, you have single letter changes there. We call those single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is a lot of syllables. So it's much easier to just to say SNP, S-N-P. You're looking at two SNPs in the genome here. Now those are common. Most of them are ancient. They've been around in the human race since our founding population was roaming around Africa some 100,000 years ago. And we are all descended from a relatively modest pool of individuals, maybe 10,000 that lived in Africa at that point. And most of these variants were already present in that group of individuals. And most of them fall in parts of the genome that may not matter a whole lot. But we're very interested in the ones that fall in vulnerable places and might make me at risk for cancer or you for diabetes. How do we figure those out? Well, first we need a catalog. We need to know what these variants are. And in the space of only two or three years, we've gone from having a very short list of these to now roughly three million of these variants that we know about that are in public databases that everybody can use. And that's come about in large part thanks to a consortium involving pharmaceutical companies and the NIH and the Wellcome Trust uh, working together with the genome centers to make sure this got generated and put in the public domain as quickly as possible where everybody uh, can use it. And so we now know uh, where roughly a third to a fifth of these common variants are. But it turns out we not only want to know them individually, we kind of want to know their neighborhoods. It turns out if you are one of the people who has the sequence that I show you here and you measured that particular point and said, oh, that was a C, it would be very likely that you could predict that over here next door that would be a T. These variants do not travel independently, but they travel in neighborhoods, in blocks. And if you could sample all of those blocks systematically across the genome, you should be able to identify the place that harbors a susceptibility to illness. And this is how this strategy might work. This is largely theoretical, but is probably not more than two or three years away from becoming a reality. So for instance, you're studying a disease, let's say adult onset diabetes. You look at the variants, the block of variants in gene A, and I've color-coded the people here so some are purple and some are green, but that really represents a different spelling in gene A. And you look at affected people and unaffected people, and it turns out you have roughly the same proportion of purples and greens in each of those groups. That says purple versus green, eh, it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference here for diabetes. That would be a negative result. Over here, however, for gene B, we've identified an orange and a blue spelling of gene B, again standing for an actual difference of A, C, G, and T. And the orange version is overrepresented in the affecteds uh, compared to the unaffecteds. And that suggests to you, although you need some good mathematics here to be sure this isn't just a coincidence, that maybe the orange spelling of gene B is a predisposing factor for diabetes. This strategy, once you have enough information about variation, can be a generalizable one. For whatever disease you want to study, applying this ultimately should allow you to identify the places in the genome that confer risk. And this is not limited to those single gene disorders like cystic fibrosis. This could well be applied to virtually any condition that has some hereditary susceptibility in its cause. And as I said earlier, that's virtually every condition. 
Well, how will this play out then in the clinical practice of medicine? Because I think that's what many of you who came here today are interested in knowing. Well, I think those tools that I've been talking about will allow us over the course of the next decade or so to identify the variants in particular genes that confer disease risk. Some of those will be high risk. Most of them will be relatively modest or low risk. That will then allow you to use that information clinically, which is sort of what starts here, uh, to apply that uh, to better diagnostics, in some instances, making predictions about healthy people and what future risk they might have, as I offered in my hypothetical uh, booth out back uh, to give you this week, which I can't do now, but we'll get there. That kind of diagnostic will be most interesting to people, I think, if you then have something to offer them in the way of a prevention. Because frankly, without that, most people aren't sure that this is information they really want to know. Right now, we know the common uh, genetic factor involved in risk for Alzheimer's disease, a gene called APOE. I could tell you, all of you, uh, in the next week, whether you're in the high or low risk category for Alzheimer's disease, because uh, we know how to do that. But I have nothing to offer you in terms of an intervention. And so most people aren't interested, and so that test is generally not available. But if there was a prevention, if somebody figured out that this vaccination for Alzheimer's disease, which is currently being studied in a clinical trial, actually works, and if it particularly works well for those at high genetic risk, then you'd be very interested, I suspect, in finding out if you're in that category to know whether you need the vaccine. The other consequences of gene identification are down here, and I'll come to them in a second. Notice that time over here is not labeled as far as the number of years involved because it will be different for each disease, and it's impossible for us right here today to be able to predict how long it will take to travel down these various arrows to get to these desirable outcomes of better diagnosis and treatment. You get the diagnosis relatively early. The treatment part will take much longer, and for many diseases, living in this interval between good diagnosis and not-so-good treatment will be a frustrating experience, but the only way to get here is to keep going. Let me give an example where diagnostics is already a useful uh, thing to offer to people. This is a family I know pretty well that has colon cancer in these two individuals, and their mother had uterine cancer. Their early onset of colon cancer led a clever and uh, well-informed physician to suspect there might be something going on here other than just coincidence. And so this family was referred for evaluation. And sure enough, it turns out that the affected individuals here are carrying a discernible mutation in a particular gene that's involved in DNA mismatch repair. Because they have that mutation, and we know exactly how to look for it, we then offered to these folks, and this person, and this person, and that person, all of whom are at roughly 50% risk of also having that same mutation, did they want to know? Now, in this situation, for colon cancer, there is something you might want to do if you're at very high risk, and, and that is enroll in a colonoscopy screening program where you get your colon looked at every year or two, starting at an early age in this circumstance, maybe as early as 30. And if you do so, there's a very good chance that these folks could pick up the polyps in their colon while they're still small and easily removed and spare themselves dying a death of metastatic disease, which otherwise all too commonly happens in this condition. And so, in fact, a number of these people have been tested, and some of them are positive, and those folks have already started into such a program. Now, it's obviously not the kind of outcome you would hope for yourself to be carrying around such a mutation, but at least here in this circumstance, there's something you can do to reduce the risk of a bad outcome. That is, as I said, not always the case. Not all diagnostics give you that kind of preventive option. 
Another form of diagnostics that has really taken off in the last three or four years is the notion that you could use DNA testing to predict who's going to respond beneficially to a drug and who isn't. And I'll give you an example of that from the cardiovascular literature. This is a little bit of a complicated slide, but it's actually, I think, uh, straightforward. Let's just pay attention, first of all, to the yellow bars. These are people who have essentially not been treated. In a clinical trial, uh, they were assigned either placebo or the drug pravastatin, which is frequently given for coronary artery disease. These were people who had known coronary artery disease and were followed over the course of two years to see whether it progressed. The other thing they did was to look at these people's DNA and to look at a particular gene called CETP uh, because there's two different spellings of CETP that are here abbreviated B1 and B2. Again, if you look at the yellow bars, the folks who have two copies of the B1 gene have the worst outcome over two years on placebo. They have progressed the most rapidly. The folks who have one B1 and one B2, you've got two copies of this gene, you've got two copies of most of your genes, one from your mother, one from your father, they do somewhat better. The B2B2 uh, double copy people do the best you know, on placebo treatment. But now if you look at the treated group, it's just the reverse. People who really benefited are the B1B1s. The B1B2s, well, they were helped a little bit. The B2B2s, not at all. And this is not very far off from a conclusion, if this kind of study can be validated in other independent trials, of saying before you write that prescription for pravastatin for somebody with coronary artery disease, you might want to know their genotype. Because if they're a B1B1, it's a great idea. And if they're a B2B2, maybe you should try something else instead. This is going to be a waste of time and money. This kind of strategy uh, of applying genetic testing uh, before applying the prescription uh, is beginning to gather momentum for things like heart disease and asthma and is likely to in invade the practice of medicine in, in a mainstream sort of way in the next decade. Of course, where we all want to get to is down here at the bottom of this, where the gene discoveries not only lead to diagnostics and predictions, but actually to new therapies that are more precisely targeted to the actual problem than the largely empirical approaches, uh, which we frequently have to use today because that's what we've got. Uh, gene therapy is still a field in its infancy. It is still not clear which diseases this strategy will turn out to be most effective for. But it is very demanding to take a large, highly charged molecule like DNA and deliver it efficiently to very large numbers of cells in some part of the body, get it to go into the chromosome where it needs to be, express a protein, and do so stably in an appropriate fashion over many weeks. And so gene therapy, while it has shown promise recently, particularly for hemophilia and a particular type of inherited immune deficiency, uh, still has many years to go in terms of exactly what role it will play in other disorders. This other area where you use the gene to understand at the precise biological level what's going on, and then you develop a drug, is also a long pathway to travel. But a recent uh, few successes in that regard is giving people a lot of encouragement that this approach may well pay off, and every pharmaceutical company is banking on that in a big way by investing in genomics approaches to new drug development as their primary source of drug discovery in the coming decades. An early example that has recently been written about much in the press is this drug called Gleevec. Gleevec was specifically designed as a designer drug, if you will, to target a protein that is not normally produced in the body but occurs in the white cells of people with a particular type of leukemia called chronic myeloid leukemia. 
Those individuals, if you look at their chromosomes, have a rearrangement where chromosome 9 and 22 have gotten hooked up together when they shouldn't have been. And in that fashion, they, those two chromosomes coming together actually makes a gene that is partly BCR and partly ABLE, which in turn makes a protein, which is a fusion between those two proteins, which normally shouldn't get fused together. And that fusion protein, it seems, has an active site, and that active site starts a cascade that results in malignant transformation of those white cells and the condition we call CML. Well, investigators at Novartis reasoned that if they could block that active site by designing a small molecule that would just fit right in there uh, in order to block its action, they might be able to achieve some benefit. So they designed this drug after figuring out the structure of this protein and knowing what the shape would have to be. And Gleevec uh, tried in laboratory experiments, looked pretty good. And so they gave it in a phase one trial to 32 patients with advanced leukemia who had failed all other forms of therapy and were not expected to survive more than a few months. And of those 32 patients, 31 of them went into a complete remission. That is a dramatic result, which rarely happens in a phase one trial. And while some of those patients have subsequently relapsed, and this is clearly not going to be a miracle cure of the disease for all people, it is a very encouraging new development in, in the treatment of this type of leukemia and a paradigm that one would like to see repeated over and over again for other conditions. Well, this is all fine, but let me not finish this lecture without pointing out that in addition to the medical promise of all this, and it is very substantial, there are many ethical, legal, and social issues raised by this accelerated pace of genetic discovery that we need to wrestle with. Jim Watson, the first director of the Genome Project, decided, given the importance of those issues, that we should invest 3 to 5 percent of our research budget in studying those uh, and not wait for the crisis someday when somebody said, well, why didn't we think about that? Now, this is a new experiment, studying those issues in parallel and with the same intensity as the science. And it's still an experiment in progress, but I think we've made substantial inroads into identifying and offering up solutions to some of the most vexing issues. This is one of them. If I had offered you that genetic test, and I had done it, and I'd called you next week with your results, one of your concerns might be, who else did you tell? Did you tell my health insurance company? Did you tell my boss? We need to be in a circumstance where if I had, it wouldn't have mattered because that information would be fully protected and could not be used against you in discriminatory ways uh, or that would be against the law. A number of states have passed such laws, including California. We really need, though, an effective piece of federal legislation or we'll end up with a patchwork of only uh, sometimes capable uh, laws to cover the issues. And both parties now agree on this. Uh, the matter is working out the details and the language of the bill. It is hopeful that, in fact, in the near future, uh, that will happen. And this particular concern that the public has in very uh, significant ways uh, can be put to rest. Are we ready for this? Are healthcare providers ready to practice genetic medicine? If you're getting a genetic test result in 10 years about your own DNA, will your doctor know how to explain it? We have not provided much in the way of background for our physicians, and even now, most medical schools do a fairly lousy job of teaching this stuff, and we have to make a better effort in the near future, or we're going to end up with a bit of chaos as this new information is just as confusing to the care provider as it is to the patient. We can't let that happen. What are we going to do about access? Genetic technology, like most new te technologies, may initially be expensive, although the cost will come down. Will we allow a situation where that's only available to those with independent resources, or will we figure out how to do this in a more broadly available way? 
a serious question and one that basically you can't look at very long without realizing that our entire healthcare system uh, is uh, somewhat in trouble here in terms of the way in which it fails to take account of issues of access. All of this study of human variation will undoubtedly shed light upon our relatedness to each other. And one of the things that we've already learned is that it will tell us that there is no scientific reason for drawing precise boundaries around given individual populations. We've actually known that now for several decades, but the amount of information is growing rapidly to prove that. At the same time, there are variants in the genome that are more common in one group from one geographic area than another group from another geographic area, and those may have medical consequences. So it wouldn't be correct to say that there is absolutely no reason to think about origins when it comes to medical uh, circumstances, but it would also be incorrect to say that you could draw boundaries and say that group is discernibly different on a scientific basis from this group over here, and there's a boundary between them. How do we package that information and incorporate it into our social thinking and recognize that what it's telling us, that much of what we use as ethnic and racial labels are really social and cultural and not biological? And this very hard question, are there limits here? Are there boundaries that we don't want to cross? Using this kind of genetic technology to cure terrible diseases is something that most people celebrate. Applying it to improve the characteristics of future generations in a fashion like the movie Gattaca is something that I think most people are very uneasy about. And yet, how do you actually try to draw a bright line between a disease and a trait? It's not so easy to do. Think of obesity, for instance. Which is that? Well, in some instances, obesity is most certainly associated with considerable medical morbidity or even mortality, so it wouldn't be fair to dismiss it as a simple trait. At the same time, the idea of people using information about obesity genes to try to produce a slender, svelte offspring that will do well in the pages of Vanity Fair doesn't really seem like the reason we're doing genetics, does it? How are we going to handle that kind of debate? Well, let me finish, because I'm running a little over time, but I want to try to be provocative here at the end in the spirit of what was intended by the symposium planners and project for you where I think we might go in the next 30 years with the application of genetics to medicine and to some degree as well to society. And I'll do this in decade intervals. And I hope nobody will hold me to this. I don't want to get calls in 2010, 20, or 30 from some of you saying, but you said because this is a very dangerous business here, trying to make predictions beyond next week uh, for this field. So I'm pretty far out on a limb. But I will predict that by 2010, this whole business of genomics informing medicine will have found its way into the mainstream because we'll have predictive genetic tests available for perhaps a dozen conditions, and importantly, some interventions available to reduce risk, as in the colon cancer example, for several of these. And this business of using DNA testing to predict drug responsiveness will be standard of care for several drugs, although I don't know which ones. But there will always be other issues. Will access be inequitable? Will health disparities persist? What will we have done about that problem? Will we have solved the genetic discrimination issues? Uh, we really should be able to solve them well before 2010, but it takes action. Okay, another 10 years forward into 2020. Genomic therapeutic revolution, you know, using the information about genes to design drugs like Levec, but applying it to many other circumstances, should by then be in full swing with gene-based designer drugs coming on the market, uh, FDA approved for things like diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. Gene therapy will, I predict, by 2020 have found its way into the standard of care for some conditions, but I don't know which ones it will be. 
And uh, we talked about this a bit yesterday. Uh, part of your medical care may very well be to get your DNA sequenced once and for all and to have that in your medical record. Instead of chipping away at it bit by bit, uh, sampling here and sampling there, just do it and have it there. And in order for that to be practical, the cost has to come down from the current roughly uh, 60 to $100 million per person, uh, <coughs> which wouldn't play too well in healthcare economic calculations. Uh, into something uh, more affordable, like perhaps 5,000 bucks or hopefully even less than that. And it's imaginable that might happen if we really keep pushing sequencing technology. But I think there will be an intense debate underway that's already starting about the boundaries here and to the degree to which we want to use genetics for things that are not diseases. And I think there will also continually be concerns raised about whether we are using technology in ways that are not acceptable to many folks. If people are worried about genetically modified foods, don't you think they'll be worried about genetically modified people? Uh, definitely. And they should be. And the only way we're going to have that debate occur on a reasonable, rational platform is to do a lot more educating of the public about what this all means so that some of the more outlandish claims, and I'm sure there will be many, can be evaluated uh, in a more rational way. Well, going all the way out to the end of the limb here, in 2030, where might we be? I think genomics will be very much in the mainstream of your healthcare, with preventive and therapeutic strategies available for most diseases. There will be tests available to predict whether you're in the process of developing an illness maybe long before you've developed any symptoms, uh, using molecular surveillance, having the genome serve as your canary in your coal mine to say when something is not right, even before you've figured that out. But, well, if it all works, we're going to start, on the average, living longer. And uh, given what's happened to our surplus uh, that we're finding out this month and what's the consequence for Social Security, it's going to only get worse. I guess this is a good problem to have if it's on the basis of increased life expectancy. And I think, getting a bit more philosophical here, if we really are in the situation in 2030, of figuring out how not only to treat uh, illnesses by using genetic information, but even to manipulate the germline, the part of the DNA that gets passed on to future generations, how will we use that? Will that be limited to circumstances where you're trying to get rid of a very bad mutation that causes lots of grief and suffering, say Huntington's disease? Or will people decide, you know, why stop there? We are not, as human beings, in a perfectly evolved state. Our own evolutionary process is pretty much shut down at the moment. Uh, why don't we assist it and improve ourselves a bit? Improve ourselves. I hope that word makes you a little uncomfortable because that would imply somebody would decide what an improvement is and that we would be sure they were right and that we wouldn't end up doing something to ourselves that centuries later uh, we turned out to regret because the environment happened to change and we weren't ready for it. Uh, so I think this will undoubtedly induce a great deal of uh, discussion, and well it should. And some of that discussion will be scientific in terms of safety, and some of it will be more philosophical and theological. Do we really want to change who we are as human beings, both of, of matter and of spirit, or is that something where we really ought to draw a line and go no further? Well, I'll leave you with some of those things to ponder. I want to finish with a quotation, which is the last quote in that Nature paper published back in February. And it's not from a scientist. It's from a poet. And I think it sums up rather nicely where we are and where we're going and what this is all about. When T.S. Eliot wrote this in the Four Quartets, he was no doubt thinking of something other than the human genome, but what the heck, it seems to fit the situation. We shall not cease from exploration, he wrote, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started 
and know the place for the first time. What an adventure. Let's get on with it. Thank you very much.